Welcome to the Prometheus Podcast, where we discuss all things macro, markets, and investing. I'm your host, Ahan, and I'm the founder of Prometheus Research. This is the third episode in a series of many podcasts to come, where we bring you thoughtful, insightful, and actionable conversations. Today, we have on a formidable guest, Mr. Blonde. Mr. Blonde is an independent macro strategist who chooses to remain anonymous. With significant experience on both the buy side and sell side, his equity-centric research is timely, precise, and pragmatic. This year, he's done an excellent job expecting the bear market in stocks and the ensuing bear market rally. So I'm really looking forward to getting his take on things. Mr. Blonde, pleasure to have you on. Great. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Mr. Blonde, let's dive right in. For those in the audience less familiar with your work, would you give us a brief introduction into the evolution and objectives of your investment framework? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about a few a few things and and feel free to you know kind of follow up or 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 pro, you know probe further. I I would say um, the evolution of my framework, um, you know, is 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 really just around the business cycle. I tend to operate with more of a cyclical time horizon. Um, you know, call that in the you know kind of three to twelve, three to eighteen months you know, kind of viewpoint as opposed to something that might be a little bit more structural uh, in, in view. And, and for me, the, the reason that's important is, you know, I think that's the, that's the time horizon um, where I, I feel like I can have a, a reasonable and convicted forecast of, of what will happen uh, and something that can be, you know, actionable and tradable in, in markets. Um, you know, the evolution of that uh, and how it's developed for me is a function, you know, of my career path, you know, not something that was, you know, pre you know, predefined by me. It was, you know, I think, probably like most people. You know, you, you sort of start in a, a position, and then one position leads to another. Um, but for me, um, it it started at a you know at Factset, which was a, a you know financial software you know data you know provider. Uh, but in that role, um, you know, and and with hindsight, I can say that I learned a lot about um, how to manage large data sets. Um, how to manipulate data, how to massage data in such a way to try to find uh, pockets of information that were not obvious or clear, you know, from the headline. Uh, and so that, you know, that's a big part of, of um, you know, the foundation for me. Um, subsequent to that, you know, bold bracket firm, equity strategy role, uh, you know, was relatively young at the time. And, you know, when you're young and you're, and you're facing, um, you know, incredibly smart institutional risk takers, uh, the only way you can engage with them uh, in a thoughtful way is to study history and to study, you know, the market environments that they know. Uh, and for me, that was, you know, largely, you know, predicated on empirical analysis and, and having that empirical analysis result in a data-driven outcome that could result in a, in a fruitful, thoughtful discussion. There certainly was going to be um, not a lot of appetite for, uh, you know, somebody to just take my word for it, so to speak. Um, you know, and then that, that, that evolved into, you know, a couple of different sort of buy side risk taking roles, um, you know, hedge fund, you know, equity long short, you know, fund, which um, yeah, I think is you know, pretty straightforward type uh, position. And then, a, you know, a big multi you know, asset manager, um, but all in the context of data driven empirical, you know, empirical uh, approach uh, to markets and, and assuming that, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes um, is kind of the, you know, the starting point for me. Okay, so there's um, a lot to unpack, but one of the first threads that I would like to put, pull on is in reading your work over the last year, I think that the, you strike a very fine balance between insight and action. And I think the perspective of both your time on the sell side and the buy side, um, would you be able to elaborate kind of on how you blended those two and mix those two together and what you learned along the way? Yeah, so I, look, I think when you're in a sell side role, um, the objective is to be informative, thoughtful, maybe a little bit controversial. Uh, but you know, in a sell side role, you, you have to be a good communicator. You have to, um, and again, I, I come back to the empirical sort of data-driven approach. Um, there's very few people, you know, on the sell side who I think are going to get away with, you know, kind of pontificating on markets and giving sort of a, a, a loose um, opinion about something without uh, presenting, uh, you know, an analytical framework for, for that opinion. Um, but then, you know, like in a buy side role, um, or in any kind of trading position, I, I think it's fine to have a, a, a fundamental, you know, or, you know, a fundamentally minded framework, but at the end of the day, um, you have to kind of find a, a trade, um, you know, like, how are you going to make money from that? Right. Like what, what is the, what is the object, like, what is the, the, the punchline, 
um, so to speak. And so I, for me, I think, I guess that sort of is that transition happened for me, you know, kind of, you know, in my, in my career. And, and I think that you know, proved to be pretty informative, which is, you know, of course you need to have a view, you need to have a thought process. You need to be able to you know, communicate that, you know, reasonably, you know, clearly in terms of how and why you're thinking the way that you're thinking. But at the end of the day, you also need to, um, uh, you know, we're in the, we're in the, in a position or we're in a, in a function where we're all trying to find ways to make money and grow capital. And so um, you're trying to identify, you know, what is the best expression of that fundamental view or of that framework. Um, and so, that, so that's how it was for, that's how it was for me. I mean, I think that's probably, it's probably, it's not to say that the sell side doesn't have the same objective. I just think that their, um, their role and their function um, is more about being thoughtful than it is about, you know, being, uh, you know, kind of money-making, so to speak. Right. And I, I think that the the aspect of being data-driven is particularly important when it comes to being able to generate insight that's actually actionable, you know? So I think um, before we dive into the data-driven aspect, what I would like to uh, get the listener familiar with is kind of what your focus is. So in in my reading of everything that you've written over the last year is you have an intense focus on the profit cycle in a way that's pretty different from the broader equity community. Could you expand a little focus? Yeah. So for, for me, um, I, you know, one of the things I like to, to say, you know, cause it, it kind of could come up from time to time, um, you know, in, in social media or other conversations. Uh, but I often hear people talk about, you know, GDP and then, you know, then they try to transition from GDP in the U S economy to whatever their, their market view is and, and what that means for S&P 500. But the reality is, is we don't trade GDP futures, right? We trade S&P futures uh, and S&P uh, composition, S&P EPS um, is not always aligned with GDP. I don't want to get into like the nitty gritty of it, but if you were to look at the composition of S&P 500 uh, and, you know, what companies, you know, make up its market cap or what companies make up its, um, you know, earnings profile, uh, it can look quite different than than you know what makes up U.S. GDP. Not to mention the global aspects and all the rest. So, um, you know, look, I I think that that's why I focus on the profit cycle. I think the profit cycle and and elements of of GDP or nominal GDP growth are are clearly aligned and um, uh, and you know uh, are not inconsistent with each other. Uh, but at the end of the day. For me, the profit cycle is what you know ultimately will determine what happens to stock prices. Uh, GDP, you know, directionally will will sort of you know likely participate or move in a similar direction, but it, it's not necessarily the um, the be all end all. I mean, you can certainly have periods where GDP is positive and and profits are negative. I mean, that's that's a historical fact. Um, so that that's that's the the gist of it. I mean, for the profit cycle, when I think about equity markets specifically. I would say, you know, kind of like we talked about before, I, I think I think of the profit cycle as being the oxygen for equity markets when it's when it's abundant and available, uh, you know, the markets can breathe easy and, and you'll generally have your know, broad participation, a lot of different parts of the market, whether they're low quality, high quality value growth will all sort of generally, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. That's a very healthy environment, a lot of oxygen, a lot of profits when that oxygen is um, scarce or being reduced, then naturally you're going to see parts of the market get choked off. These are the parts of the market that are, you know, likely to be the, you know, the quote unquote problem areas and, or the areas that might um, be struggling in whatever the current, you know, set of, you know, macro circumstances are. And then obviously broader, you know, if, if you have broader, um, a broader negative, you know, growth environment or weakness, then, you know, that's a much more challenging environment for equity markets overall. Um, and is much more likely to result in, um, you know, you know, kind of a more severe or you know, damaging, you know, backdrop. Whether that be you know, rising credit spreads or you know, kind of balance sheet issues for companies. But at the end of the day, profits are what um, make equities work, in my opinion. I I definitely agree with you, and I think uh, a lot of uh, listeners might be a little bit surprised on this front because um, I obviously do a considerable amount of work at Prometheus with regards to GDP. But when it comes to equities in particular, what GDP is useful for is the the components as it pertains to what it means for profits. So when we think yeah. about profits, we think about profits in terms of 
gross investment relative to non-business savings, right? And that residual from flow of funds accounting is basically what profitability is. So if you were actually to go out and try to create signal based off GDP data, you would end up with a very, very poor strategy. So I'm, I'm absolutely on the same page as you. I think the only useful components of GDP when it comes to actually telling us what profitability is, is that there's, there's specific line items that can be used to kind of deduce where we are in the profit cycle. And I think that's the useful component of GDP because you can actually break that into monthly components. Um, now, we, I think we've established that the profit cycle matters. Now, I, I, I would be very curious on how you're thinking about indicators and conditions. And we don't have to talk about any particular specific indicator, but what are the things that categorize or you know create the archetypical indications of a profit cycle for you? Well, I guess first I would say that you know, since you touch on indicators, I mean, for me, you know, in my, you know, in my framework, and, and you touched on this before about sort of being data-driven and empirical, um, you know, having an indicator-based framework helps me to think about what is the sort of the most likely, you know, future path. Now, of course, it's a, it's, it's not perfect. No, you know, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect model, certainly no such thing as a public one. Um, and, and if, and if, what you're really trying to do is um, to think probabilistically and think about, you know, what, what, you know, what is the most likely set of circumstances in some future point in time. In my case, I, I try to think about what, what is it, what's the environment likely to look and feel uh, and act like, you know, in three to six months from now. And that's, you know, and that's kind of how, how I operate. And the indicators that I use to try to identify um, what I'll call sort of the, the macro growth cycle or like my macro growth composite, um, you know, it's a combination of, you know, earnings growth leading indicator, um, you know, which is its own set of, um, has its own set of inputs and factors. Uh, the PMI, you know, and, that, and for me, that's like tends to be like my long leading indicator. So think of that as being, you know, forecasting the, the environment 12 months from now. Um, PMIs are, you know, what I would consider to be sort of the medium term your, you know, uh, leading indicator, and they tend to have, as as I'm sure you know, tend to have a lot of, you know, high autocorrelation, and that once they start moving in a direction, they keep moving in that direction until acted upon by, you know, something else. Um, and, you know, for me, the long leading indicator, the earnings growth leading indicator is already going to, you know, give me my, um, my, you know, establish my expectation. Uh, the the medium term, the PMI type indicator is, is when I should, you know, uh, be more, you start to pay more attention to that shift in environment or that change in the environment uh, because it, it's likely to be, um, it's like something that you want to start acting on now, right? Or start preparing for, you know, in, in the more sort of immediate, you know, kind of time frame. And then, you know, I look at like short-term lead indicators, which are maybe a little bit more sentiment-based, but something like, you know, earnings revisions trends, you know, and that's really just a, an aggregate of what, you know, analysts are doing to, you know, company forecasts, right? Like are in aggregate, are they taking numbers up? Or are they taking numbers down? What is the sort of like the the direction of that? And, you know, the combination of those three things, you know, over the last, you know, 30 years has, has generally proven to be a pretty good, um, you know, kind of regime map. If you want, if you want to think of that when it's, when it's high and rising, uh, you, you know, you have a certain environment and certain parts of the market perform well. And when it's low and falling or negative, um, you know, or, you know, you're in contraction, you know, so to speak, then, then market performance, you know, tends to be, you know, pretty consistent in, in those uh, modes as well. So going off that, you're looking at, you know, if I were to broadly bucket them, you're looking at essentially earnings, earnings revisions, you're looking at PMIs and probably a br very broad set of them. And then you, you have your own, mm -hmm. you know, proprietary leading indicator for, you know, the earnings cycle, right? And now when you're trying to identify points in the cycle, um, are you looking for dislocations between these? So are you looking for conditions where one set of things is incongru incongruent with another set of things? Or are you looking for, are they all reinforcing each other and creating probably a durable sort of situation which we can be in? Because they, they create two different opportunity sets in terms of how you can deploy risk, right? Yeah, so I would say generally speaking, it's more the latter than the former in that um, the earnings growth leading indicator, which tends to be long leading, will sort of establish the what, what I would consider to be my baseline expectation for growth expectations. Like that's that's sort of the the anchor. 
the PMI cycle, and like you said, you look at a number of different versions of PMI, both geographically as well as the internals and you know new orders, inventories, and other aspects to to gauge the the quality of the of the headline. That for me tends to be the indicator that sort of confirms what I know from the earnings growth leading indicator or what I expect from the earnings growth leading indicator. So if the earnings growth leading indicator is telling me that growth from here will be um, you know down 10 percent you know in 12 months time um, I'm much I'm much more likely to um, have confidence in that view if PMIs are also falling and pointing in that direction so it's a it's a confirming uh, indicator in that sense it's pretty rare I would say historically for the indicators to kind of be you know um, really divergent they certainly can be there can be some timing differences. Um, or like you said, you know, maybe like maybe there's more divergence that can happen with something like, um, uh, you know, earnings revisions breath, you know, earnings revision breath because it you know tends to operate with a little bit more variance, you know, kind of bounces around. But as long as the other two indicators are sort of pointing in the same direction, then you know you tend to ignore you know some of those some of those wiggles that that happen in earnings revisions revisions breath. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so speak. Are you talking? very very briefly in your comments and I, I i wanted to kind of get into that a little bit more so you're you're looking for a set of self-reinforcing conditions right and um what i've also seen that you do a really good job is showing how asset prices actually fit into this picture as well in reinforcing what you know these some would call fundamental signals are telling you so would you touch on that a little bit in terms of how you're yeah. looking at asset markets to confirm or deny? Because they offer you a much more high frequency kind of signal, right? Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I probably should have um, included that when I when I talk about indicators, because, um, you know, and I, I've mentioned this before, and, and I'm sure other people have heard it before. But, you know, Stan Druckenmiller likes to say that, you know, the best economist he knows is the guts of the stock market. Um, and, you know, he's referring to cyclicals versus defensives, um, but I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think when you look at, you know, what the, what the, when you look at the internals of the stock market can tell you when you, when you identify or you're evaluating certain um, pair trades, whether it be sector pair trades or style factor pair trades, um, I think there can be a tremendous amount of information. I, I think ultimately that information stems from, um, you know, a combination of wisdom of crowds, meaning collectively a group of of investors or traders is you know is everybody's kind of seeing a little bit of something, and so when they all act about it, act on it a little bit, then it starts to show up in relative prices. Um, I think the other aspect of it is is about risk tolerance, in that you know risk tolerance and preferences will change. Um, I think you know uh, before you see it at the headline index level. Uh, you know, because there's a process with which people um, change their opinion. First, they reduce something, then they sell something, that kind of mentality. And so um, now the the problem and the challenge with using, you know, the internals of the stock market is that, you know, you obviously can also have more false positives, meaning you can have short squeezes, you can have other, you know, um, you know, it's a more volatile series and one that also by definition is, is affected by more things and 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 trader and, and investor emotion, um, and can certainly you know um, be off track. So I try to think of those things like relative to their trend, uh, and and to think about you know um, how they're interacting with what I see in uh, non-market based you know kind of more fundamentally um, driven indicators. You know, and I think that the combination of those you know is obviously important. And then I think it's also a function of you know, every cycle, like cyclical cycle, and you probably have seen this in your in your own work, has a certain um, time frame, right? Like, I mean, it, you know, it's like it's one of these things like where like the ISM cycle, peak to peak or trough to trough, you know, often kind of lasts, you know, three years or whatever it might be. And so you kind of think of like eighteen months of downswing and then eighteen months of you know swinging back up. Um, and so if you're if you're early in that cycle then you're going to be much more likely to dismiss some of these, you know, counter trend moves, you know, that are happening within, you know, market internals as your leading indicators are pointing in a, in a more definitive direction. Um, later in that cycle, you might take, the, you might take the market moves a little bit more seriously um, and, or, you know, watch them 
you know, with a, with a bit more attention, if, if that's, um, if that, if that makes sense to you. It does. It does. And, and just to take your point further with regards to the internals, I think that while there is the added volatility of, you know, using internals, I think that there's also, um, the aspect of the prices are just positions and positions usually reflect asset and liability needs over the course of a cycle. Right. Um, and I think uh-huh. that 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 relative pricing over time, as it as it starts to trend in a certain direction, is giving you indications of how things are changing in relative conditions between various sectors. Now, the the question I think that always comes to my mind as you know somebody who is um, trying to be systematic, right? Like I I try to find uh-huh. the 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 principles that I think that I can bet on over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And what comes to mind is that we're, we're establishing a hierarchy of things, right? So we think that, you know, we have these variables that sort of operate on these different lead times. A question for you is, how do you think about managing the risk of breaking down in those relationships, right? Is it to say that, okay, yeah. I'm going to put together just such a diverse array of things that, okay, if even one starts to underperform, I, I, I know that, you know, in broad, my composites are going to do well, or is it a question of constant re-examination and monitoring? Yeah, I mean, much more the latter, constant reexamination and monitoring. And you, even if you have um, what you think is a thoughtful, empirically based framework, uh, data driven and the rest, it does not at all preclude the importance of um, evaluating the today and now and the present for where there might be um, important fundamental changes in the in the macro you know, picture that that could Maybe maybe you still you know kind of maintain the same your general path in whatever your indicators are saying, but the amplitude could be smaller, you know, or there could be other nuances as a result of um, you know the current you know set of conditions. So I, I think that's important um, for sure. Um, I, I, I said I, I, I kind of I try to use sort of weight of evidence. So it's you know I do my best to triangulate you know what's happening in in equity market internals. How does that compare to what's happening in commodity markets? What might be happening in rates markets or credit markets? Um, you know, you're sort of you're, you're you're evaluating and you know kind of finding relationships where there is historical consistency, uh, and then, like you said, regular monitoring to see that there um, if there is a divergence, trying to understand what's driving that divergence and you know you know which represents the truth. But oftentimes the truth is, you know, can be, um, you know, maybe you have like one specific market that's, you know, being driven by technicals or some kind of technical factor or some, you know, kind of idiosyncratic event. Um, if you can identify the truth as being, you know, two or three other markets are all still pointing in the same direction, then you're sort of less less likely to apply a significant weight uh, to that divergent um, to the divergent market. I'll, I'll give one, I think, you know, reasonably clear example from the last um, eight to to 12 months. So, um, you know, I've been of the, you know, weak growth, you know, you know, Fed is hiking us into a, into a cyclical growth slowdown. Now, historically, if PMIs were falling, you know, your, your, one of the first things you would do would be to receive rates, right. And 10 year yields would fall with, with PMIs falling. I mean, for, for most of the last um, nine months, you know, that has not been my focus. Um, And my focus has been more on, you know, kind of cyclicals versus defensives and sort of the internals of the equity market. And obviously what it meant for the broad equity market, and that's, you know, part judgment call and, you know, in part, you know, just the recognition that, you know, if the Fed is hiking, uh, then, you know, then you're, then, you know, you have an uphill battle in, in receiving rates. Now, if you look at the internals of the rate market, the curve was flattening the whole time, which I think is indicative of a, of a is, is consistent with the idea that the market was viewing, you know, growth, was likely to slow, or at least there's some aspect of that. Um, but obviously, the level of rates was driven much more by, um, uh, you know, policy actions than it was, you know, driven by, um, you know, kind of the, the the growth or cyclical growth environment. So, you know, the, you have to, you know, you you know, like anything else. I mean, I think you you have a you have a framework, you have a set of expectations, and then you kind of have to um, apply good, thoughtful judgment about you know what makes sense today. Um, versus, you know, what made what made sense historically. You know, just with uh, the flow of your conscience there, you uh, you kind of uh, you front ran my next question, which was um, you do an extremely good job of 
making equities, which, you know, for whatever reason, tend to be within the investment community, just their own silo. Uh, mm. You make it much more like a macro asset class and you make them speak a very similar language. And a phrase that I heard you say a couple of times is this idea of rolling up the EPS curve, right? Which makes immediate sense to anybody that, you know, invests in fixed income or this idea of, you know, equity carry. Um, and I think that that framework is extremely valuable as an overlay on top of you identifying these turning these, these, you know, these self-reinforcing parts of the cycle and then applying it, you know, in this kind of macro framework of, in, of investing. Would you touch on this idea of, you know, rolling up the EPS curve a little bit? This is a function of having conversations with macro-minded fixed income, you know, individuals and trying to explain why equity markets are doing what they're doing at given points in time, because, you know, oftentimes, you know, um, obviously carry is a, is a term and a, and a, and a, a framework that's, that's well understood within the fixed income community. And, you know, and I think when, when people look at, you know, equity markets, uh, you know, that come from that, you know, part of the world, they often look at carry and they think of dividend yield or other sort of quote unquote, like pure measures of income, but in equities, like your returns, or your expected returns typically come from um, expected fundamentals. And so I, you know, I, I guess if I would just to like really, you know, simplify it, if you have a, if you have a company that can grow earnings 20% a year, um, you know, with some, you know, um, reasonable time, you know, over some reasonable time frame, let's say five to 10 years, uh, and you're, and you're confident in that, if if the multiple in that asset doesn't change, then you're going to earn 20% a year for the next five, 10 years. That's your carry, right? So carry is, uh, you know, your expected return, assuming no change in valuation, right? And that's, you know, that's, that's true and carries, no pun intended, carries true in fixed income as well, which is, you know, that's, that's what you're expecting to earn. And, and this is sort of just, you know, trying to uh, highlight to, you know, other you know, market participants outside of equities, like what makes, what makes the equity market, um, what makes the equity market tick? And then ultimately tying it back to what we talked about the profit cycle, why is the profit cycle so important? If you have an environment where um, expected profit growth is, let's say positive and, you know, of a meaningful amount and, or you have earnings revisions are rising, that's an environment where the asset class is a positive carry asset class. I mean, all else equal, assuming no change in valuation, you're going to expect to earn that, you know, you're going to roll up that EPS curve. Uh, the reverse is true. If you have negative, you know, negative growth expectation and or you have negative revisions, well, all of a sudden, now when you're decomposing the, the price or the return of S&P 500, you know, it's, you know, negative revisions or negative EP, you know, EPS growth times whatever your valuation change is. So, if you have a negative profit growth environment, if you want to make money in equities, you better be really confident that you're going to have valuation expansion in that environment to offset what you're losing in, you know, carry or IE a negative carry asset. So in a nutshell, that's what it is. I mean, obviously this, this plays a maybe an even, even more important role when you get into certain types of stocks, when we talk about growth stocks versus value stocks or like income, you know, dividend paying stocks. Um, I, I think ultimately carry is some combination of the, um, or, you know, vol adjusted earnings growth profile, or you know, how confident are you in? You know, think of like a, a company like Visa, right? Fairly stable. Like the EPS growth, like line is going to look like a forty-five degree line. Well, over time, that there's a source, of, you know, that's a form of carry. Um, as long as you can get comfortable that the valuation profile is not going to have a meaningful change to offset that. You make some very good points. So you know. Just tell me if I'm thinking about this correctly, because, you know, you, this, this can kind of be expanded to a cross asset kind of view as well, right? Because um, every, every macro, macro asset class is essentially priced relative to other macro asset classes, right? And I think the most popular combination of asset classes is, um, is fixed income asset classes, which is mostly treasuries, right? And then mm -hmm. equities with varying tilts. But... Mm -hmm through this kind of profit cycle and rolling up the EPS curve idea, you're also telling us that we have a much more variable rate of cash flows and a much more probably volatile EPS curve relative to a treasury curve, which creates mm -hmm. situations where, you know, 
probably treasuries become more attractive just because of the volatility in EPS in a given point in time. Does that make sense to you? Um, yeah, well, no, I, I, it does. I mean, I would say that that's like equities, you know, trade on like 15 to 20 vol and treasuries trade on like five or six vol, right? So that's like reflected in, in that. And obviously treasuries are, you know, fixed income, predetermined amount of carry. Um, equity carry is variable uh, and can, you know, and in some periods can be 20% a year and other periods can be 5% a year, you know, you know, the, the carry and fixed income is always positive, right? I mean, generally speaking. So um, yeah, it, it does make sense. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I guess I would say like the, the attractiveness is I think a function of your, the attractiveness between asset classes is a function of your confidence in the um, earnings carry inequities. Meaning if you were confident that you can get 15% a year from equities, then you're going to be much more likely to own equities than you are to own treasuries, right? The flip side is if you're if you're less confident in that 15% a year, or you think that that 15 might be minus 10, then naturally you're gonna you're gonna be much more focused on the carry that you can that you can earn from treasuries or the stable low vol asset. All else equal. That that makes entire sense to me. So I think we have a really good idea of you know how you're looking at the profit cycle. Now I, I would say that the the second component is obviously um, valuation and how are you baking in kind of what is happening with the valuation component? Are you looking at you know the Fed? Are you looking at liquidity? What what is it that you think that drives that? Because as a macro driver, that's really important to get right to be able to make sense of the cycle too, right? Yeah. Look, this is the hardest part. I think. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, value is in the eyes of the beholder. So, I mean, and, and oftentimes value and valuation, um, you know, I, I have a, I, I feel, I feel like I have a pretty good earnings growth, um, model and a, and a lot of other people do too. Um, I have yet to see anybody who has a really good PE or valuation model that doesn't have some, you know, massive, you know, standard error that, you know, that says like, oh, well, PE could be 20 times or, or or 12 times, right? Or whatever the range is, it's just too wide to really be. Um, or it's just not a detrended series at all. And somehow they're just correlated levels. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, but the point being that like under there's a, you know, valuation can have a, can have a lot of different levels under different set of conditions. And it's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint like quote unquote, you know, now like part of this is PE is a residual Right. I mean, it's an it's it's the it's an output of something. It's you know, and um, so it's difficult. What I would say is, we know um, well. And then another point, and this is you know, uh, Mike Katranowitz at at Piper has made this point many times, and I agree with him, which is, you know, the composition of the S and P 500 over time also matters. Meaning, you know, you have a certain set of companies today that make up a big portion of the index, um, some of which weren't even around. 40 years ago. Let's like like take the software sector as an example. Like I mean software didn't really even exist, but certainly not in in the format that it is today uh in the 70s, 80s or even the early 90s, right? And so, you know, back then you had a an index composition that was much more banks, materials, energy, industrials heavy, um all sectors which have a different earnings variance and cyclicality and therefore also by definition the market assigns a different valuation profile to them. And so it is. It's. It, it can be a little bit tricky to, you know, in a in a comfortable way, make valuation comparisons, you know, historically, um, and 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 that's probably part of the reason that nobody has a really good, you know, kind of forecasting model and why there's, you know, a, a big difference in terms of um, where valuations can be. I, I some of the things that I use that I have found to be reasonably effective, but a lot of this is, you, I think you have to regime control for valuations, and w- one way to do that is you can say. Okay, what has been, what's the sort of the five-year rolling, um, five-year rolling bands of valuation, and you can kind of think about how, you know where you are and and how you're operating within those bands, and and when you're at the top end of the band, then you know you probably think that there's room for your valuation to come off. When you're at the bottom of the band, there's room for valuation to, um, you know, all all while monitoring and thinking about what things might be happening in the market that can kind of, um put you into a new regime, 
like you know into a you know into a, a new you know kind of PE multiple trading range. So some of the things that have have done that in the past, one would be um, Fed policy, right? So a Fed policy change typically puts you in a new valuation regime um, for a period of time. So if the Fed's hiking, then typically multiples are compressing. That's just a function of discount rates going up, and obviously, like you know, the liquidity you know reduction that's happening, it creates uncertainty. Uncertainty means that you should have all else equal have a, a lower PE multiple. Um, there can be other you know valuation regimes that that you know that that can change as a result of you know corporate tax policy. You know, you know, if all of a sudden corporate taxes are lower than all else equal, then maybe you have um, uh, you have you know higher you know uh, valuation. So. Um, and then, and then another one that's like I, that I've mentioned on Twitter a number of times, and I've highlighted because I think you know valuation is not only about corporate you know tax policy or Fed policy. It's also a recognition, and this is a little bit of the composition of the index. Um, it, it also has to do with the profitability profile of companies. I mean, if you look at S and P 500 or you know U.S. large cap companies, the free cash flow margin profile of the index today, it it basically was mean reverting and kind of had a flat line. From like the 1950s through the 2000s, and since then it's been um, upward sloping, meaning companies are getting increasingly, you know, more profitable, uh, and that's important. And I think that that's, you know, more profitable companies trade at higher valuations. That's just that's just math. I mean, it's just an equation. It's not it's not really controversial, um, but I, that's one of the reasons that the U.S. markets trade with a higher valuation than um, overseas markets. It's one of the reasons and that tech sector trades with a higher valuation than um, cyclical sectors. It's not, I don't think it's at all controversial, but that's also an input uh, and has to be considered when you think about the level of valuation. Um, you know, the, you, know you can, you, it's a little bit easier maybe to kind of isolate when valuation should change rather than to determine what's the right PE multiple uh, for the market. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a bit of a, a tougher um, nut to crack. Right. That that makes much more sense than probably saying that, oh, a long-term valuation of 15 or, you know, a P multiple of 15 is where we need to be over the next 10 years. I think that this idea of, uh, you know, bold regime and composition, you know, conditionally, they they catalyze what, what what's going to happen in terms of valuation, right? And I think that's a much more useful mm -hmm. and applicable framework when it comes to actually taking risk. Um Good. I think we have a very good understanding of kind of how you think about both legs of, you know, how equities are typically described uh, in terms of, you know, the earnings component and the valuation component. So I think that's a good jumping off point for, you know, current conditions. So, you know, you've done a fantastic job this year of, you know, being kind of ahead of the slowdown and also, you know, being ahead of the bear market rally. So why don't you talk us through how you've sort of seen the landscape today? How do we get here? No, that's a good question. I think that um, you know, if I if I just think about how things evolved over the last you know twelve to eighteen months, um, I think that in let's call it the sort of the first half of twenty twenty one, um, we were obviously digesting the, um, you know, still digesting a lot of you know policy stimulus you know post COVID, we had a pretty robust growth environment, but things were obviously also kind of at a point where they were starting to turn, meaning your know, rate of change in growth uh, was starting to show signs of peaking. And that's always kind of like the early sign of, of, of change and, you know, change in the cycle and uh, kind of the next phase, you know, and I, you know, I was generally pretty constructive in the first half of, of 2021. Um, and, you know, when we got to the third quarter of, of 2021, I think it became increasingly clear that we were going to move into a, into a phase where the fed was going to be, um, Tightening policy in reaction and response to, um, you know, the the growth and in inflation conditions that had had built up over the previous year, um, but you know, kind of in an awkward way, you know, it was right at the time when cyclical growth was was going to roll over. And so one of the things I started to talk about in the fourth quarter of last year was this idea that the Fed was going to be hiking into a growth slowdown. And this growth slowdown was not really about like, oh, well, like they're going to be hiking into a recession or they're going to be hiking us into some you know, kind of secular growth problem. It was much more about cyclical growth was naturally going to subside uh, in 2022. This was going to happen anyway. We pulled forward a tremendous amount of demand as a, as a function of stimulus. Um, if you look at personal, real personal goods consumption 
on a two-year growth rate, it was like north of 10%. And if you look at that historically, it was like the the, the biggest um, growth rate in personal goods consumption in like 60 years, right? So we bought a lot of stuff in a short period of time, the kind of stuff that you buy once every five years. So, you know, by definition, we were going to have a, a slowdown. Now, the problem or the challenge that I, I saw developing late last year was that, you know, the Fed hiking into that meant that, you know, you, you have a situation where discount rate is being taken up or the cost of capital is rising at the same time that cyclical growth momentum is falling. And that's just a really difficult environment um, because usually when the discount rate is rising, you want to have um, cyclical growth momentum offsetting that uh, tightening of financial conditions. And when that's not happening, you know, I, I guess you know, a quick sidebar, I would say financial conditions can be tightened in one of two ways. Either you can have a discount rate rising or financial conditions can be tightened as a function of growth um, decelerating or being negatively revised. And so in this case, you basically had FCI being tightened at both, you know, burning both ends of the candle, right? So, and so that just means that the, the impact is, is more significant uh, and happens faster. Um, and that's, you know, I, you know, and that's was sort of the genesis of, you know, when you have a you know, Fed tightening cycle. And then when you, you evaluate this, the speed of the tightening cycle, you know, other things, you know, can happen as well. So long-winded way of saying, I think the majority of what we've seen um, over the course of, of 2022 so far is pretty consistent with what, um, what I expected, which is a difficult market. Um, you know, you're losing the anchor of, you know, having a growth tailwind at the same time that the, you know, the Fed is hiking uh, and the Fed you know, this is the don't fight the Fed mantra. I mean, the Fed's hiking because they need growth to slow and or the consequence of Fed hiking is typically growth will slow. So, but you're just adding that on top of um, a cyclical environment that was already going to slow. Um, if I look at how markets have traded year to date, I would say by my judgment, the first four or five months of the year uh, and the weakness that we saw in equity markets was primarily about um, Fed uh, rate hikes um, and equity, you know, an equity market valuation adjustment, um, you know, kind of, you know, coming off as a result. Um, I think the last couple months, you know, let's call it, you know, the June correction um, and some of the things that have been discussed in, in July and August are, are the market sort of thinking more about the growth risks associated with both Fed tightening as well as um, you know, as people have gotten the chance to sort of see how things develop through the course of the year. So taking one step back, I would say we started 2022 with um, peak liquidity, peak valuations, and peak, earning, and peak earnings, right? And by my judgment, I think we've done a pretty good, we've made, we've made good progress on correcting for peak liquidity uh, and peak valuations the last six weeks notwithstanding. Um, I think that the the next part of or the next phase of this quote unquote correction uh, is to is to make some progress on on peak earnings. I mean, I've shared this chart on Twitter, and you, you may have it, but I, you know, er, you know, currently S and P 500 to use that as a proxy, EPS is running 25% above trend. I mean, if you look historically, the the other recent times that that's been the case is 2000 and 2007. And so, you know, that just creates a really high hurdle for earnings to, you know, continue to grow at a double-digit pace uh, when you've, you know, pulled forward a lot of that earnings power um, in in the course of the last 12 to 18 months. So, that's kind of how I that's kind of how I see how things, you know, progressed and kind of how we how we got here. Right, and to add some context to the to the pulling forward of this earning power, right? The the goods the the good spending that we we saw, you know, post pandemic, it was most of it like a very large chunk of it was actually de- driven by durable durable good spending. And you touched on this briefly, but I just like to highlight it for for the listeners. Um, those components tend to be pretty big ticket items. We're talking about you know housing, housing related products, um, mm-hmm. automobiles, and things like that. You're not going to buy five of those a year. So once you pull forward the, that spending, there is an incremental effect of, you know, the, there is spending to service the, those, those new items, right? So you, if you buy a car, you mm-hmm. need to get it serviced. Or if you, you know, you, you get a house, you need to buy furniture. But once, you know, that starts to peter out, you, you've, you've essentially kind of using stimulus checks, you've kind of pulled forward that demand. And that demand isn't necessarily sustainable on a 
forward looking basis because that was created by stimulus rather than some sort of production and income being grown at the same time together. Right. And I think this dovetails nicely into um I'm I'm very much on the same side when it comes to watching the the trajectory of real growth. But what we've also seen is that inflation and growth have kind of diverged, right? And yeah. we have this situation of arguably, you know, on, on a forward-looking basis, decelerating inflation, right? But still very high levels of inflation. And I, I'd like you to first, you know, kind of talk to me about your views on how you're seeing this inflation today. And then also talk to me a little bit about how equities will work in this kind of high inflationary environment. Yeah. So, you know, obviously inflation is a pretty contentious topic. Um, and understandably, I mean, inflation in my mind is is maybe more of a behavioral uh, and reflexive condition. Uh, and so it's, you know, and obviously, as we've learned in the last, you know, year and a half, um, this is another area where people or PhDs don't have a good forecasting uh, framework. Um, look, I think the bulk of the inflation problem is a result of uh, policy decisions to limit supply, some deglobalization forces that started, you know, frankly, in 2016. And so we're like well underway by the time we got to COVID. Um, and, you know, I think primarily we're a result of massive, you know, post-COVID stimulus. So you basically had a situation where um, the households or companies or whatever were incentivized to spend and, and, and incentivized to um, grow demand at the same time that production was limited uh, and other, you know, kind of national decisions about, you know, COVID policy and other things kind of restricted the ability for free flow, you know, like the movement of goods. Um, and then, you know, I think above all, even in like a normal sort of economic, you know, times, you know, not a shock like COVID, inflation, um, you know, inflation follows growth. And I think the inflation that we saw in 2021 and even in the first part of this year is a function of the very strong cyclical growth environment that we had, uh, you know, uh, in the second half of 2020 and, and 2021. Um, so that that to me is is not that part of it's like not really that inconsistent with with what you would expect. I mean, you can overlay you know, various measures of inflation and PMIs and, and kind of see that relationship over time, the, the delta and the momentum of that. I think the Russia Ukraine event. Um, poured salt on an open wound, right? It was like we were already sort of in a vulnerable position. That was like the next leg in broad commodity prices, you know, given the importance of that region for a bunch of different commodities. Um, that exacerbated a, uh, you know, that, that exacerbated a situation at, a, at an unfortunate time. And we can we can all play counterfactual and sort of guesstimate what what might have been if that wasn't the case, and and maybe things would be in a slightly different um, place today. But I think that that was a that was a challenge. I think the Fed's policy from a few years ago to talk about average inflation targeting, you know, this is a, you know, a classic, be careful what you wish for, you know, kind of policy objective in that I think they thought that this was, you know, a good idea. And maybe in normal times, it would have been a fine idea, like in a normal, like low vol, like low economic volatility environment, maybe it would have been okay. Uh, but this was a high economic volatility environment. And that kind of policy, I think, uh, is pretty tricky because, you know, you can very you know, it's a it's a policy that works in theory, but not in practice, right? Which is in theory, like in the you know on the white paper, it's like, oh yeah, well we can just sit back and do nothing and let inflation build. Uh, in practice, it becomes a much harder thing to do because the the market's just going to move a lot faster than the Fed is is um, institutionally capable of moving. And so I think that that's um, I think all those things kind of have contributed to the inflation backdrop. Personally, I think that. At least on a year-over-year -year, like momentum basis, and I kind of talked about this a couple months ago. I think inflation is probably we've we've we're, we're past the worst of of that, and that's certainly a relief. Um, but I don't think that I, I don't think that this is I don't think that's the end of the story uh, with regards to inflation. There's still we still it still needs to kind of get you know to a, a level that makes central banks um, you know comforted, and then obviously in other regions you know, Europe and and what's happening there with energy prices, uh, you know, inflation is going to remain a problem uh, for some time. Right. So I, I think that um, you touched on this, but 
I think that the, the trend in inflation is largely set by the channel that you're talking about, where the inflation expectations, so there's a degree of autocorrelation in inflation. So once it takes off, it really takes off. And then we also had this overlay of you know cyclicality where we had income injections and then the economy reopened and we had this boom in spending, right? And it was spent on a particular subset of goods and as it, which were already in short supply because we had outages. And that created the cyclical upswing and then add fuel to the fire with this idiosyncratic Russia-Ukraine situation and you end up where we are right now, right? So, and that's kind of like how I would conceptually decompose the time series of inflation right now. Um, I think the the question that comes to mind is the the Fed's reaction function to inflation seems fairly clear, not necessarily how far they're willing to go, but um, we have a good idea that now they're reacting late and probably trying to go as fast as they can to get this under control. I think the question that comes to mind is how do um, how do profits deal with this inflationary impulse, right? I think um, it's often touted that profits are on nominal are in nominal terms, right? So how do how in your view how do you know you can talk about sectors if you like, or you can talk about the broad aggregate, yeah. but how do different parts of the equity market deal with these inflationary pressures in terms of profits? I think this is kind of like one of those things that, you know, a story that people tell. And, and then when you actually look at the data and the facts, it's, the story is not as strong as the, as the narrative. Let's look at the last year. Year over year, uh, S&P 500 um, earnings, um, X Energy, are down 5%. So negative 5% growth year over year. This is in the context of inflation being up 9%. So profits are not necessarily um, inflation protection. Now, sales growth is is closer to what nominal GDP growth is. But so like in order for profits to be the same, you, you have to assume that companies can like maintain their margins, right, in order for that to be true. And that's obviously like that's the part that, you know, oftentimes is not true, meaning like their input costs are generally rising faster than their ability to raise price. Um, but even if we look at sales, um, you know, S&P 500 X Energy, year, you know, quarter, you know, year over year quarterly sales are at nine, you know, were up nine and a half percent. So once you strip out inflation, they were flat, which is consistent with the idea that like various measures of real growth or unit growth are weak or flat, even though um, value or the, you know, price times quantity is is higher. And so... I would say pockets of the market are going to be some pockets of the market are going to be hurt by this much more than others, in my opinion. So, for instance, you know, like various, you know, consumer cyclical sectors um, have been shorts in my mind um, uh, for over the last year. And it's related to this. I mean, when you look historically at how consumer groups behave uh, in periods of rising inflation, they're among the worst performing uh, because, you know, their discretionary purchasing power is being um Restricted. I mean, that's that's only it's not rocket science. Um, and so I think those those groups will continue to be uh, impacted. And this is sort of like you know part of the story that we hear from you know Walmart and Target and you know Dollar Tree and other you know companies that you know where margins are generally pretty low in those businesses and it doesn't take a lot of volatility to upset the business model. I mean, I think other parts of the market that are less com- commodity sensitive, less sensitive to to you know, um, global trade, uh, you know, could you know could pr- prove to be more resilient. Um, you know, some of the areas that come to mind are like software or exchanges or like the insurance sector, things of that nature. Um, and, and overall, I think when you think about inflationary regimes, um, I would say profitability is an asset. Meaning, if, if you have margin. And you have high high margin. You have a, if you have a high margin business, your ability to withstand um, your or, or maintain price um, or be competitive in that environment, um, you know, certainly is 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 greater. But overall, you know, inflation is a is a difficult thing. I think for most business models. I mean, especially when when we think about, you know, it's been a long time since we've had this kind of inflation shock. So I think a lot of companies are going to be tested, and that kind of volatility creates a lot of uncertainty. Um, both on the part of corporate management, I think, but also on the part of investors. I mean, there's just, we're going to learn some things about business models that we didn't know um, 
you know, I think we already have, but we'll continue to to learn about that and, and that where there are vulnerabilities. I don't, I mean, I think, I guess the other thing to say about inflation as it pertains to sort of profitability and, and equity markets is this is one of the reasons that in, in periods, well, I mean, obviously there's usually a Fed component to this, but also I think um, there's obviously an expected margin component to this, but this is one of the reasons that in, in periods of high, inf- high and volatile inflation, you tend to see lower valuation multiples. It just, it creates a lot more uncertainty and those pressure points um, are more, are more acute um, and difficult to forecast. Right. And I think that valuation effect is also probably coming from, you know, the the reflexive response from Fed authorities to raise interest rates and actually curtail liquidity, which probably supports valuation more than the inverse, right? Fully agree. Yeah. Um, it's a common you know, th- like this is where like inflation is kryptonite for markets, right? Because it it both of it both it complicates your sort of profitability component, right? Um, it creates demand destruction on the part of consumers uh, and business consumers. And then on the flip side, on the other end, uh, it forces the Fed to be reactive and engaged and raising discount rates. So discount rates going up at the same time that you have uh, demand destruction. Right. And also you you have uh, a very nice visual of this um, where you, you highlight how the, the distribution. So maybe in aggregate companies can deal with margin pressures, but the distribution is far from equal. Right. You have the energy sector. Just, you know, in uh-huh. both in terms of realized EPS and forward-looking EPS, just dominating the, the the entire index, even though they're a much smaller component of the index, right? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, this is the thing, right? So, you know, uh, higher oil prices are good for, clearly good for one sector, and they're generally bad for the other 10, right? Generally speaking, it's not 100% true, but, and so... You know, this is just a huge sucking sound of profits and profitability from you know one you know one large portion of the market, uh, and and you know it all goes to a much smaller portion of the market, and so that's that's a challenge. And so, you know, I, this is you know one reason to kind of evaluate and think about the market, or at least you know look at some statistics on a quote unquote X energy basis. I mean, I always have to be a little bit you know, cognizant of, you know, excluding the, the quote unquote bad or the good things from the market. I mean, that's not necessarily the market we trade, but I think in, in this case, it gives us a, a truer sense or a truer picture of what the earnings environment um, is for most companies. So just to recap, I think that, you know, we've seen what you're saying is that we've seen most of the leg down coming from kind of the discount rate and valuation effects so far. But you're expecting uh-huh. us to kind of have a slow bleed where we actually have the earnings components come off during these inflationary periods and also kind of a cyclical slowing, right? Um, yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, to quote your Substack, uh, are you going to bark all day or are you going to bite? Um, <laughs> so uh, why don't we get into kind of how you're positioning based off all this stuff? You've given us a really rich framework and kind of walked us through how you're thinking about the world right now. So how are you thinking about positioning in this environment? Particularly, I'd like you to touch on kind of how you're thinking about more active, you know, maybe long short stuff. And then how are you thinking about, you know, your, your beta side where I know that you've written about liking high quality compounders. So how are you balancing those Mm -hmm. two, if at all? And yeah, what do you, what do you prefer right now? Yeah. So first, I guess I'll start with the the beta aspect. I would say overall risk exposure for me is um, really low. So if I were to put that on a scale of one to ten, ten being max risk, um, my my you know kind of net exposure, I would you'll put it like the two to three level for me, which is you know um, you know kind of leans you know flat to net short. where that 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 a lot of the shorts are in what I would consider to be like high beta cyclicals. So you can think of it like on a beta adjusted basis being short. On a notional basis, you're you're probably you know kind of close to market neutral, maybe a little short. Um, I would say that um, I, you know look I you know we 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 didn't you know touch on it. I I tried to differentiate or I do my best to you know you know it's always hard to trade against your core view. But you know, my core view is that um, we have an earnings downgrade cycle in front of us, which I think is already underway, and I think there was already pretty clear evidence of that from 2Q earnings season, despite you know many people saying it was a quote-unquote good season 
without acknowledging how numbers are being cut both, you know, um, into the second quarter as well as coming out of the second quarter. Uh, and then the magnitude of the beach on that quarter being pretty low. So, um, so to me, at best, you can call second quarter earnings season a low quality beat. Uh, and I think low quality beat is typically what happens before you have a miss. Uh, and so I think a miss is is something that I see in the cards, you know, um, you know, come third quarter and fourth quarter of this year. In this case, the miss, I think, will be both in the combination of reported results, uh, as well as what companies um, guide us to into 2023. Uh, and I think that that can serve as a pretty stark reminder that, um, you know, it, you know, let's call it at 4,100 on S&P 500, uh, the, the valuation profile you're paying um, for the market in an you know in an environment where you know earn, you know um, sorry where uh, equities are now negative carry is probably too rich right um, and so that's that's a big part of what drives uh, my overall sort of beta net exposure um, I you know look I, I I am predisposed to what I would call high quality growth compounders I mean I I would you know I I wrote about this and there's a note on the Substack about it and so it can be reviewed this is a little bit more of a secular you know, kind of viewpoint that I have, but these are companies that, you know, are generally speaking profitable, dominant in their industry, oligopolies and or in industries that have, you know, oligopoly type structures. I think that these are stocks that, you know, over the course of 12, 18, 24 months um, are going to be good, good stocks, good companies, outperformers of sort of S&P 500. Obviously, any style any you know part of the market can be um can get wrapped up in uh you know six to nine month periods of underperformance and so you have to be cognizant of that and obviously in a difficult market um you know there's risk associated with with companies particularly companies that people know are good uh and where valuation might you know trade at a premium i happen to think in many cases that valuation premium is justified because these are companies with a proven track record um of of profit outperformance um, but that often doesn't matter in in short periods of time. The way that I try to balance it is that uh, is what I do on the short side, and so you know generally much more active on the short side um, than I am on on the long side. Um, and the short side is you know that's kind of how you carry your your longs to you know realize the you know what you think is um, you know you know a positive result at some point in the future. Um, so I, I I do generally still you know favor that I think if you pay attention to the cycle you can find um, you know quote unquote good low quality you know cyclical you know shorts you know that can um, you can put against your uh, against your longs you know some at some points in the cycle you also have to be pretty cognizant of how you how you balance the style factor exposure. So, you know, I, it's been sort of less of a focus for me this year, but, you know, late last year and most of last year, actually, you know, a lot of, you know, the ARC complex, you know, I saw as a short because this was a group of stocks that had um, very expensive valuations, you know, whatever, EV to sales of 20 times or whatever the number is. And so when you look at, you know, expensive stocks or you think of, you know, whether it be by sector um, exposure or style factor exposure, i.e., you know, valuation or um, you know other measures of growth. That that you know that represented a pretty good um, way of offsetting some of that you know associated style factor exposure. You know, I'll give you an example. People or the market tends to talk about tech stocks, and I, I find that a lot of the conversation lumps both Nasdaq and Arc into the same bucket, and that they're just kind of talked about as this you know, quote unquote, like tech bubble. But if you look at NASDAQ versus ARC, it's massively outperformed, like not even close. And I, to me, that's a function of, you know, good, high profitable growth companies outperforming low quality speculative growth companies. Uh, and, that's, and that's the type of stuff that I think you can capture and can help you manage through different, you know, difficult periods of time as you wait for markets to settle um, the, the the clouds to clear. At which point, I think that those high quality growth compounders uh, will have derated pretty meaningfully in that period of time, because in a lot of cases, earnings will continue to grow um, at a better than market rate. Uh, and then when when um, when the coast clears a little bit, they can I think they can reset higher faster than other parts of the market. And to be to be clear. I don't think that that's in the next three months. It's probably not in the next six months, but that could be a story for 2023. 
Right. So you're essentially looking for relative value where you're trying to overweight quality relative to, you know, a, a, a basket of shorts that you're looking at, which I think is an excellent thing probably in this environment. Um, on the flip side, do you feel that there is, you can create an adequate set of bets just within the equity complex doing that? Or are you looking to other places that you feel can create, you know, some additional value add to, you know, these structures that you're thinking about? Yeah. So, um, in a nutshell, yeah, I mean, look, I think if if you have the ability to short or to be long and, and short, then I'm, I'm reasonably confident that you can recreate just about any macro factor using, um, you know, a, a you know, various mix of, of, of equities, a basket of equities on the long side and the short side. Now, obviously, you might not get the same convexity profile uh, or you might have different carry characteristics. In some cases, I think the carry characteristics are better when you do an equity pair trade. Meaning like, think about like, if I wanted to be long vol or I want to be long VIX, I can recreate a pair trade that's very similar in, a, in an equity pair trade. And I don't have to worry about the negative carry associated with being long VIX futures, right? As that, you know, as you, as you suffer that, yeah, you suffer that roll down. And so that, that becomes a little bit more about like uh, portfolio construction, right? Like, and how do you have some trades that, that you like for, you know, quote unquote fundamental reasons, but also have characteristics that, you know, that can, that work when you have that kind of convexity that happens in the market. And so, um, you know, one, one trade that I have on now that I like that's related to that is to be long, um, the, what it's, it's a proxy for the Dow Jones anti-beta market neutral, you know, index, the, the ETF ticker for it is BTAL, but this is basically your long, low beta stocks, short, high beta stocks on a sector neutral basis. So you're, you know, you're not taking like, you're not taking long utilities, short tech exposure, you know, it's all kind of balanced within that. But historically, when you when you look at that pair or that style factor, it it trades, um, it performs well with measures of financial conditions. So when financial conditions are tightening, it's performing well. Uh, it performs well in periods when, when vol is going higher. It performs well in periods when ISM is falling. And so I look at the current environment, I see that we have all of those conditions. Um, that's a, I think that, that that's a nice way of basically having um, implicit short risk uh, without necessarily having to be short the market, right? Um, you know, sort of implicitly short. Fantastic. Um, I think we're coming up on time. This has been a fantastic conversation. I've enjoyed this immensely. Um, before we sign off, uh, where can our listeners find more of your work? Yeah, sure. So I, um, you can find me on, on Twitter, which is at Mr. Blonde underscore macro. Uh, and when, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the platform for me to kind of share ad hoc views, you know, um, charts and, you know, short form observations. Uh, and then I, I've been writing on Substack for uh, about a year now, you know, a, a couple, few times a month. Um, that, that's us stuck in the middle um, is the name of the Substack. Uh, the form there is to be a little bit more thoughtful, um, a little bit more uh, a dense form of, of writing and sharing of framework and thought process, uh, you know, a lot of empirical analysis. And hopefully for, for a lot of people, uh, we'll have data sets um, and studies that can, you know, can prove to be uh, shelf, you know, research or, or things that they can refer back to uh, at, other, at other points in time um, and or something that they can uh, try to mimic themselves um, you know, and, and make useful within their own uh, investing framework. I highly recommend our listeners check out um, his Substack. It's fantastic. Um, well, thank you so much for being on, Mr. Blonde. That's great. Yeah, thanks again for having me. This is a great, you know, great set of questions and um, as usual, sort of pretty, pretty thoughtful and, and pointed. Take care.